How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hi, guys. Welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall. And today I'm talking to Eric Trexler for part two of all things reverse dieting. Within this part, you're going to learn why there are so many anecdotal reports of reverse dieting working so well and why maybe they aren't what they seem. I think this is a really, really valuable discussion. Definitely want to listen to. And if you do enjoy the podcast, please give us a like, give us a subscribe, do rate us on the podcast provider that maybe you're listening this to. This really helps us reach a wider audience and get this information out to many, many people. So thank you so much. Let's get into part two. There's a lot that you said there, and it was very good. I had so yeah, many I thoughts. Yeah, I probably just rambled for like 20 <laughs> minutes. but No, yeah. it, was, it, was, it was really, really good and well explained. I had lots of different thoughts that were kind of shooting through my head. But the one that is immediately coming to me was um, in terms of you mentioned like that one day of fasting, you can already see it in that thrifty individual. Are there any uh, markers as an individual or as a coach you could look at to see that? For example, I have um, like clients go through a mini cut and I have one right now, and his resting heart rate like immediately dropped like five beats and mm-hmm. is is that something could you look at something like a resting heart rate could that be predictive of whether or not they're thrifty or spendthrift you know that's a very useful question that's a very interesting question but it's not one that i have an answer to um yeah it's an interesting concept and i i i would speculate very very carefully that there might be something to it, you know? So if we look at some of these easy indicators of downregulated energy expenditure, maybe if you wanted to kind of separate the signal from the noise, maybe you do like a short-term underfeeding period, uh, you know, like a, like a mini cut, which tends to be usually a pretty aggressive uh, dieting phase, like pretty, pretty big deficit. Maybe you do look at over that time, like let's, let's take a look at something like resting heart rate because, you know, we've seen, I mean, Steve, you've seen the case studies in bodybuilders, look at their resting heart rate into the thirties. I think I've seen some data points into the twenties. So yeah, like it does seem to be a marker of general downregulation of, of of metabolic activity. So that could be kind of a proxy or a marker that, that might be effective, but I can't say that I've seen anything uh, related to that in the research. So yeah, yeah, there could be something there. It's uh, interesting to me because I guess a lot of the coaches listening and myself included when i take someone also through that kind of mini cut scenario it's like steps are staying high so we're trying to kind of counter that neat like in terms of like the spend thrift and thrifty i don't know what the the phenotypes that we're looking at can is that like neat or is it are there there other things like like i said like that down regulation just resting heart rates you're just generally burning less calories is there ways we can see that or kind of counter and fight against it yeah. So the metabolic phenotype research, the, the way that people are categorized in these phenotypes is it differs from study to study, right? So some people will say, 
let's just look at your total daily energy expenditure, right? That's that's a straightforward way to do it. Others will say, well, let's look at the resting energy expenditure component because that's the one that is least malleable due to like, you know, day-to-day activity. So let's look at that and just assume that it, it's generally going to correlate with, with total daily energy expenditure. So let's look at the gap from your predicted to your measured resting energy expenditure. Uh, in some cases, uh, I, I've, I've seen research that they'll even look at a longer time scale and say, well, you know, let, let's go through all the equations of what was your true energy intake and, you know, let's get some objective and, uh, measures of expenditure. Let's look at changes in stored fat mass and, store, and stored lean tissue. Let's calculate the, wow. the implied energy deficit associated with that. So they'll even look at longer timescales and say, well, when we put all the pieces of, of the puzzle together here, we can see that it, it very much looks like you had an adaptive drop, you know, in, in energy expenditure based on these longer term outcomes. So the way it's quantified varies from study to study, but but generally speaking, you know, they 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 all kind of move in the same direction, which is that, you know, resting energy expenditure and these non-resting elements, there there seem to be these phenotypes where people broadly implement conservation mechanisms or they don't. Uh, and uh, that's a spectrum. So I, I know I just framed it as a dichotomy, but people either have a lot of conservation or very little. Um, and, and the way that people go about quantifying that differs from study to study. But I've not seen anything that would really allow someone in a coaching perspective to use a quick proxy and say, oh, cool. Yeah, I, I did a one day or one week little thing, a diagnostic test so to speak. And now I'm, now I know that you're spendthrift. So I'm going to put you into that spendthrift kind of category so that we can move forward accordingly. Usually it's going to be something that develops over time. But another thing that's important to remember, while it is a, a fascinating question and a useful question that can get us somewhere quicker, you'll figure it out, right? Like, you know, you're, you're working with a client and, um, you know, wh- whether they're, you know, thrifty, spendthrift, somewhere in between, 25% this way, 25% that way. Ultimately, as a coach, you're still responding to the same indicators, right? And you're saying, okay, well, rate of weight loss is slow. Uh, Looks like you're thrifty because we got to reduce calories again, or we need to add three or four weeks to the timeline here. So uh, I I do think it'd be valuable to to be able to do kind of a quick little screening uh, mechanism like that. Uh, But I, I can't tell you based on the research that one currently exists that has evidence. Yeah, I think that that uh, and the point you ended on is exactly where my mind was going. I was trying to think of a comparison. I was like, as people think about high or low training volume, and it's like, well, it's all relative to the individual, and you just kind of auto-regulate based off what's providing you results in real time. So, fifteen sets for one person's quads is high volume, but maybe for another person, that's like their baseline level to just start getting a response. It's like, you just have to adapt to the scenario or in this person's got way more recoverability than you and they get way less fatigued or what have you. But ultimately you just have to use the inputs and outputs and it doesn't really matter. Like, oh, it's interesting that maybe you'll spend thrift or thrifty or you need higher than average levels of volume or lower levels, but to get the result, it's, you still got to do the thing. <laughs> so it yeah. doesn't really change anything. Yeah. And then, so I think, I don't know if it's a good point to move on to uh, I guess we could move on to kind of what should we do was the question you had in here in terms of kind of diet breaks, uh, refeeds, and you also had like 
not making it worse uh, was another one you moved on to. So I think that might be helpful to kind of help people navigate this a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, with my content, uh, the overarching goal is not to nitpick. It's to be helpful, right? Like that, that is theoretically the, the driving force behind it. And so when I, whenever I write an article like this, it's like, okay, I have weakened confidence in something that was proposed as a solution. And it was a very appealing solution because it's a problem that's very difficult when you face it. Uh, this idea of really struggling with weight loss and feeling, you know, like like you're you're really stuck in terms of your energy expenditure. So I wanted to talk about things that that do work, you know, th- things that might make sense. Um, you know, there there is evidence when we look at um, you know, the the metabolic adaptation literature, when we look at the diet break literature, there's evidence that physiolog- real physiological physiological changes happen when we go from negative energy balance to neutral or slightly positive, right? Um, Getting out of an energy deficit changes things and that can be leveraged, right? So what I hope people get from this is that this is actually good news that reverse dieting lacks evidence because it makes our life a lot easier. You know, one of the things that, that is stressful about reverse dieting is it's often done so slowly that the margin for error is zero, right? If your intervention is to increase your carbs by 10 grams a day, uh, there is no room for error. And if you believe that that intervention is physiologically important, then being off by 10 grams of carbs on any given day is a physiologically important error, which is not true. Uh, and, and also not, not a fun way to diet, man. Like that's tough. Uh, so, I think uh, it's good news that reverse dieting doesn't work because you you don't have to actually like go in and fix metabolism and you don't have to diet with that razor thin margin of error. But simply, you know, if you're in a situation where you're thinking, you know, maybe reverse dieting would have been a good move for me. My argument is that simply doing a maintenance phase is likely to accomplish everything that reverse dieting would have. Um while being much easier uh, and much less stressful because if you're if you're doing a maintenance phase and you go 100 calories lower than you planned on Monday on Tuesday you can just go like a little bit higher and you're fine but reverse dieting has this temporal component where it's like you, on every day you have to be ramping your energy expenditure up to this really minute degree that's physiologically implausible but also just really stressful so if you're someone who's thinking you know I think reverse dieting is definitely there's two scenarios. Yeah. First of all, if you're shredded, you got to you got to regain some fat if if you want to be feeling yourself again. Now that's that's up to you. It, you know, but but everyone's been looking for like how do I stay absolutely disgustingly shredded? You know, cover of the magazine, bodybuilding stage, shredded without feeling crummy. No one's found it yet, you know. So, so in that situation, maintenance is going to be okay if you if you're if you're going from a deficit to maintenance, it, it'll be better than not. But to fully recover, you're going to have to regain some fat mass. Uh, but but for everyone else who's not like absolutely shredded and they're thinking, I think reverse dieting might be for me. You know, there there's evidence to suggest that yeah, when you go from a deficit to maintenance, there will be a little adjustment in energy expenditure. It will go up a little bit, and you probably will feel fewer symptoms of diet fatigue. I mean, Jackson Pios has done excellent work on diet breaks, and what I really like about his work is that it shows what they do and what they don't do. 
right? So, you know, the, the, the diet break literature would suggest there's no persistent fixing of metabolic adaptation because the fat loss outcomes generally tend to be pretty similar whether you used them or not. But, you know, Jackson's research showed that during the diet break, you know, subjectively, psychologically, there are some improvements um, and even performance indicators that, that that seem to go up a little bit. So it's very clear from my perspective in his research that diet breaks do important things, but they don't solve metabolic adaptation, right? So uh, what I encourage people to do is rather than saying, I need reverse dieting, which is going to be this meticulous process that's, that's very poorly supported in terms of research, just do a, a maintenance phase. And the, the I used a term in here, I'm very frustrated, uh, to be honest, I called it dy dynamic maintenance. And I, I saw at least a couple people on the internet kind of called me out like, oh boy, here we go, coining a cheesy term. That's not, <laughs> that wasn't my intention was to like, you know, trademark the term and then sell an ebook on it in six months. Uh, the reason I call it dynamic maintenance is because a lot of people approach maintenance in a very static way. They say, well, my maintenance calories are 2,400 calories, so I'm going to eat 2,400 calories. I say dynamic maintenance because you might find that simply going from negative to neutral energy balance increases your resting energy expenditure a little bit. Maybe you have a small increase in non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And this is not because you're making it happen with reverse dieting. You're not forcing your, your metabolism into this state. That is simply a thing that occurs when we go from negative to neutral energy balance. And if we go from neutral to 10 carbs more than neutral energy balance, we're not moving the needle at all, right? So one of the arguments I make in my article is that the reverse dieting, the actual intervention, the strategy, it's basically just a long for the ride, right? It, it's like any little tiny tweak you make in your training program. It's not really going to be forcing drastic changes from Monday to Thursday, right? So what I would encourage people to do is do maintenance, uh, but do it dynamically. And what I mean by that is if you go to maintenance and then you notice, oh, body weight is actually unexpectedly drifting down a little bit, then you would increase your calories a little bit to just stay weight neutral. Um, and and that, that's what I mean by dynamic maintenance. And to be clear, you're going to have to be watching like a hawk for a long period of time to notice, oh, body weight actually is drifting down a little bit. But generally speaking, when I look at this kind of approach to a maintenance phase, uh, based on the evidence, it seems to provide everything that a reverse dieting actually provides um, without making any really exciting overhyped claims and without being nearly as difficult or stressful in terms of the, the margin of error. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I, I'm I'm frustrated that you're frustrated that that term people have kind of had a go at you for it. Because I thought it, I, I was like, yeah, dynamic maintenance, it makes complete sense. Like you're trying to like chase and keep with that level. And then you'll probably find you just kind of plateau unless you have a complete lifestyle change. You become a builder or something and you're yeah. sitting at a desk all day. Uh, and, so you know, the, the reason I say it, I mean, uh, to, to be totally clear, it's like that's just baked into the way I view it. Because like, you know, we, we have our, our diet app called Macro Factor and right. there's a running expenditure estimate. And I interact with our users. I see that thing going you know, it, it, it's not like it just you you find your energy expenditure and it's flat, right? It changes over time due to lifestyle factors, due to physiological factors. And so, yeah, our, our when when someone in our app goes to maintenance, it is a dynamically adjusted maintenance phase. And the reason I say dynamic versus static is because we do have settings within the app where if you say, hey, things are going to be kind of weird, 
you know, don't don't do any crazy updates to my expenditure. They're not very representative of what's really going on. You can switch over to a static phase where you just tell the app, just just assume that my daily energy expenditure is is what it normally is, right? So yeah. that, that's why I, I I have the static versus dynamic terminology in my head is because the app is how my brain views all this stuff. And so then the logic in the app kind of reflects the the internal logic of, of how I perceive it, you know? So yeah, it was very frustrating because with that, with that article, like, like I said, some people were like, Oh boy, here, here, we, here we go with another, you know, fad fitness term. And I'm like, then just don't use the term, just say maintenance. Yeah. It's fine. And then someone else is like, Oh, he's just writing this article to, to sell his diet app. And I'm like, dude, there's easier ways to sell a product than a 60 page article uh, with a, a whole section about me basically saying, by the way, you can use all this information. You don't have to buy the app. Like yeah. the app uses it, but you, you don't need it. Right. So those are the two things where with, with the feedback on the article, I was like, come on. And then, then the third one was like, like I mentioned earlier, some people that really didn't want to interact with the content at all, but wanted to cast doubt on it. You know, like it was kind of a strategic thing, like, right. oh, I'm not going to dive into the actual substantive claims. They would just say, you know, some people go to maintenance and then reverse diet. And I'm like, that, that doesn't actually rebut like any meaningful claim in the article that just yeah. that just like influences like figure 11 or whatever. Like, oh, yeah, move some of those bars. But yeah, so generally speaking, though, the, the feedback has been really, really receptive. Yeah. Right. I think it should be. And like I said, I, I like the term. I think it, it it makes complete sense. I mean, it is dynamic maintenance. <laughs> like it, it, maintenance isn't like a stat. Well, I guess you could argue maintenance, like maintenance is maintenance, right? But it's static, that numbers. In, static in body weight, but dynamic yeah. in expenditure uh, exactly. and intake. Yeah. And so I guess some people, when they go through this kind of maintenance period and I've coached people through it and you, or even just a diet break, they expect to see weight gain sometimes because of more food and more carbohydrates coming in some people don't see that sometimes some people see a drop off um but is there something is that something you kind of would tell people to expect because i guess that's some worries people see as like oh, i increase my food and then my scale weight really jumps up and in my experience normally it jumps up for a lot of people it jumps up maybe a percentage of body weight or two and then it kind of stabilizes after that period of time is that something you would say people should expect and not like freak out because it's again, it's an expected kind of outcome from extra carbohydrates, food and water retention from glycogen storage and things like this. Yeah, it really depends, right? You know, so uh, if you're someone who is in a very modest energy deficit, then you probably shouldn't expect a massive change in food intake, just the raw bulk sure. content of food. And you shouldn't experience or expect a massive shift in glycogen dynamics because you, you weren't in like a massive deficit to begin with, right? So um, so that, that's one complicating factor is how big was your deficit? Another complicating factor that Steve, you'll know this being in the bodybuilding world, I'm sure you've seen this a million times. Sometimes when people are really stressed during a bodybuilding prep and they're doing a ton of cardio and a ton of weight training and you know, they, their blood is like 30% cortisol at that level. <laughs> Sometimes you will see that people do a diet break or a series of refeeds and their body weight drops because they, they'll, they'll do a diet break with a deload and there's such this reduction in just general stress that they'll, they'll notice, oh, I actually was retaining fluid prior 
to this transition, right? The, this diet break or this deload. I remember one time in a bodybuilding prep, um, I was coaching myself and I mean, I was doing the right things and body weight wasn't budging and I was running out of time. And I was like, I, I know I'm doing the right things, so I'm going to stick with it. But the next time I had a deload, I lost six weeks worth of weight over wow. like, you know, at that point I was crawling to the finish line, sure. you know, like I was, it was late in prep, but I, like every time I would make a change, I'd say, oh, I should lose this tiny amount this week. And I didn't. And then the next week I should lose this tiny amount again. And I didn't. And it just all caught up once I kind of took my foot off the gas pedal. So it's complicated in ter- in terms of determining how much to expect, but yeah, you, you should expect in many cases, a perturbation, the magnitude and direction will be dependent on those types of factors. I think that's really well said because uh, it's, I always, because I have clients, maybe they go through a diet break for the first time and they're like, what What should I expect to body weight to gain weight, right? And I'm like, well, we're maintaining kind of like your fat and like uh, muscle mass, but your weight might not, like people think maintenance or scare weight must be exactly the same. It's like, yeah, I've seen it go both ways. Like you said, some people see yeah. like big drop off. Some people really see a big gain and then they get back into a deficit, all comes right back off. So I yeah, always think but, but, like ignore that kind of week maybe. <laughs> yeah, definitely ignore it. But um, to make my answer more useful and helpful, uh, the way it's framed is important, right? And so I, I do think the expectation, first of all, most people, if we had to just do like vote counting and say, okay, who lost weight, who gained weight? Most people are probably going to experience a small increase in body weight during that transition. So that's a good thing to prepare people for. The other thing is considering the cost. What is the cost of unexpected weight gain versus unexpected weight loss in these small magnitudes? Steve, we know they don't matter, right? These are little fluctuations, but on the side of the client, what is going to be most upsetting? And what is going to be the biggest threat to an individual's confidence and self-efficacy moving forward? I think it's important to prepare a client and say, based on the fact that we've been dieting and we're using a diet break or a maintenance phase for a reason. Um, and I use diet break and maintenance phase. Obviously, we're talking a diet break is generally short, a maintenance phase sure. tends to be longer, right? Uh you know, just operational definitions. But I think because you're using a diet break or a maintenance phase, likely because we're running into some friction in the diet, it's valuable It's valuable to prepare them for a small amount of unexpected weight gain so that we're, we're, we're braced for it, we're ready for it, we know the context of it. If they happen to lose weight instead, no big deal. Like, that's great. Most yeah. people are going to look at that and say, oh, hey, look at that. Lucky us. Right. So I, I do think in terms of framing it, you probably don't even want to say like, hey, cross your fingers and hope for an unexpected weight loss because we know it's not meaningful. Um, and I think it's probably more advantageous to say, let's expect some weight gain, but but let's be open to whatever happens. Do you not see the progress you would like? Are you sick of writing your own programs? Or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with the plan? Then it's time to start working with us. We at Revive Stronger offer a truly personalized coaching service. You'll get more than just an email with some macros or random cookie cutter program. With Revive Stronger, you will be the center of our attention. You will receive your own fully individualized training protocol alongside a customized nutritional strategy. We created the coaching around your needs, wants, personal preferences, and your own unique lifestyle. Every single week, we delve into your program in order to make appropriate adjustments so that we 
get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better. If you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change. Sign up today and let's revive stronger. Yeah, I think that's well said. Prepare for the worst, essentially. It's like, like yeah. the worst. It's not bad, but Even it's the like... the worst is fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and actually, that gets me on to, if you've still got time, Eric, because I know we've sure. uh, gone over the hour. But um, yeah, one of the subjects for the end was like, why there's so many positive anecdotes. And one I've mm -hmm. definitely seen is this kind of people trickle up their food and they maybe see this cortisol drop. They see body weight drop and they're like, oh, my metabolism is clearly ramping up and my deficit's getting bigger. And they kind of, uh, and so they're like, I can have even more food. And then maybe you can describe kind of why these dynamics are happening and they don't continue long-term maybe for the majority of people at least. Yeah, yeah. So what I what I outline in the article is what I call four illusions. I, I think maybe it's because I've been getting into so much Buddhist reading. There's, there's always all these numbered lists. And I was like, ah, four illusions. That sounds good. But four illusions that make reverse dieting seem much more effective than it is. And they fuel these really positive anecdotes that I'm sure we've all seen. And before I get into this, two very important caveats. When I get into these illusions, I'm not trying to uh, reject the experience that anyone's had. What I'm trying to do is explain that experience and get to the the root of it in a way that's actually compatible with the scientific evidence. You know, I'm trying to explore these experiences, not reject these experiences or say, oh, you only feel that way because you don't understand, or you only feel that way because you're you're being dishonest about about what happened. That's that's not at all the case. These are illusions that are very compelling. And without taking them objectively and then weighing them against the evidence, I fully understand why people would say, dude, I am certain that reverse dieting worked for me because look at what happened, right? So that's a huge caveat. When you when you talk about these illusions, I think there's a natural kind of defensive thing where it's like, well, don't, don't tell me that I didn't experience what I experienced. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm trying to do is take that experience, boil it down to the essential elements and say, how can we most effectively explain that with the evidence? What's the most parsimonious explanation? And that's if you if you like evidence based stuff, you know the principle of parsimony is central to that. That that is a key foundational element of science, which is that if we have two competing explanations, one is fully compatible with the evidence, the other relies on unexpected undiscovered physiological effects that we have no evidence for, we kind of have to go with the first one in terms of our, our working understanding of the phenomenon. I mean, that that is built into it. And it's okay if you don't uh, subscribe to that perspective, but that's the evidence-based perspective in its current form, right? So the four illusions, I'll just go over these really briefly. You can check out the article for really in-depth explanations and even examples, numerically speaking. Number one, I mentioned the margin of error with reverse dieting is razor thin, right? And so a, a necessary consequence of that is for most people, they have never tracked as accurately as they track during a reverse dieting. It is the most meticulous tracking period of their entire life because they really have been led to believe that if you're off by five or 10 grams of carbs, you have now nullified the intervention. 
um, which again is not physiologically plausible, nor is it practically plausible based on uh, you know on a day to day basis, based on you know um, tracking error and you know labeling error and things like that. But um, there have been studies where they they get with these people who it's it's kind of the target market for who reverse dieting is marketed toward. People who say, "Man, I'm maintaining on super low calories. I have a history of uh, of really struggling with weight loss." They, there have been studies that actively recruit that population and observe their act, their in, their intake, their uh, physical activity, and the research indicates those individuals in many cases will over-report uh, their physical activity by about fifty percent and under-report their energy intake by about fifty percent. And when you account for the over and under-reporting metabolically, they are right where we would predict. I mean, right where we would predict. And so, a lot of times. We'll see individuals and like even dietitians, registered dietitians who are extremely well trained uh, nutrition professionals, even they'll underestimate their intakes by up to twenty percent sometimes. So, a lot of times we will look at someone and they'll say, "Man, back then I was maintaining at sixteen hundred calories, but now I'm in the exact same you know body composition level, same activity, but now I'm maintaining four hundred calories higher." In many cases, what we're seeing there is a 400 calorie gap between relatively loose tracking and extremely precise tracking. And the extremely precise tracking is a necessary element of reverse dieting. So sometimes we're just seeing a mismatch between I forgot about 400 calories in the past, but now I'm, I'm tracking all 400 of them. So that's the first illusion, in my opinion, is that just a, a memory related, tracking related, misattribution of really bad energy expenditure in the past, but really great energy expenditure now. The second one is that, you know, uh, the, the way I put it is that an individual's maintenance uh, calorie target, we can view that as a bit of a range of targets um, just because of the uh, the challenging nature of understanding when we are truly explicitly exactly at maintenance. And so what I mean by that is, you know, the, the example that I give is like, you know, if you are a hundred calories off, you know, if, if you think your maintenance is 2,100 calories, but it's actually 2,200 calories, it may literally take you months to identify that you're in a very small deficit, just looking at your body weight changes with the naked eye. Same thing goes. If your true maintenance level right now is 2,200, but you've been eating 2,300, it's very likely that you believe your maintenance calories are 2,300 because it will take literally months before you're able to observe, oh, actually, body weight is trending upward. And the, the challenge is that there's so much variation from day to day. It, it's it's logistically challenging and practically challenging to see a very, very slow rate of weight gain or weight loss over time. So with this in mind, I'm not saying that you are changing your maintenance level from 2100 to 2300. I'm saying that if your true maintenance level really is 2200, you might eat both of those calorie intakes and believe you're at maintenance and you'd be very justified in believing so because you're pretty much you're pretty much at maintenance, right? And so depending on the individual, that range could be from 2100 to 2300, it could be from 2000 to 2400, right? And so it's not that hard to imagine a scenario where someone was, you know, in maintenance based on the naked eye, but they were actually eating in like a 150 calorie deficit. But then because they were now 
really focused on trying to nudge their expenditure upward and eat as many calories as they can without precipitous weight gain, it's very possible that they've just put themselves from a small deficit into a small surplus. Um, and the weight changes aren't pronounced enough to actually see that over short time scales. But it's very possible that their energy expenditure hasn't changed at all. But it looks like their maintenance calories have changed by, you know, sometimes up to two, three, maybe even 400 calories uh, just because of how hard it is to identify the difference between a small energy imbalance and true maintenance. Um, the third illusion is, I think, similar to that in a way. Um, it, it's kind of similar to both of those elements in, in terms of the memory component and just kind of how we perceive the relationship between our intake, our body composition, and our expenditure. And the way I state the illusion here is that calorie intake is instantaneous, but weight change is cumulative, right? So if, if someone says, you know, explain my body composition as it currently exists, I don't just say, oh, what'd you, what'd you eat yesterday, right? That, that's ridiculous. I don't say, what'd you eat this week, right? I say, what does your energy intake look like for the last 18 months? Because that that's what we're and, and really longer to, if we're being honest. But when we look at changes in body weight, it takes time, right? So like you look at the actual energy content of one kilogram of fat mass. You know, it's estimated to be like what, like ninety four hundred calories plus or minus for a kilogram of fat mass. So a lot of times, what we're seeing is that people will start working their calorie intake up and up and up and up and say, well. I haven't gained a lot of fat. And so I'm I'm left to assume that my energy expenditure has really ramped up to match these caloric changes. And what I usually instruct those individuals to do is like take note of that over the next year, right? Not over the next two weeks. Because how much fat can you gain in two weeks? Not that much unless you're really trying to, you know? And so a lot of times there's just a mismatch where people will say, well, I used to maintain this body comp at a lower calorie level, but they're referring to a period of time that was like two years long where they were really maintaining at that calorie level, but now they're ramping up their calories aggressively and they're ramping up calories at a rate where we mathematically could not even imagine significant fat gain to have occurred yet, but they may still very much be in a fairly sizable energy surplus, right? It, but it will take time of being in a surplus before you actually start to see the cumulative impact of eating far above your maintenance level. In the short term, it looks like you increased your maintenance by 500 calories. In the long term, you say, oh, that's where those 500 calories went. They were accumulating over months, right? So that's the third illusion. And then the fourth illusion, I borrowed a concept from my arch nemesis, Eric Helms, categorically the inferior Eric in the evidence-based fitness space. But what I was getting at here, so they had a really great paper, uh, Eric Helms, Brian Miner. I, I don't remember if there were others on the paper. Uh, I, I apologize if, I, if I'm leaving anyone out there. But they talked a little bit about uh, progressive overload. And the way they framed it is, you know, we're not going in every week. And just because we added five pounds, where that, that little tiny programming change made a world of difference to what you can do next week. Like what they're saying in their paper about progressive overload is that we are, broadly speaking, able to continue 
increasing the load on the bar or increasing volume or whatever the case is, because we have been maintaining a sufficient stimulus to get stronger. So it's not that these very, very minute programming changes are forcing strength where it would have otherwise not been realized. Um, if that were the case, then programming would be a nightmare with all the little tiny details we'd have to mind. But what we're trying to do is make sure we have a sufficient stimulus for strength gain that doesn't overwhelm our capacity to recover. And as long as we're within that sufficient but not excessive range, we should be able to continue adding over time in terms of overloading volume, intensity, whatever the case is, right? So we're creating the conditions to enable further progression via adaptation. And what I argue is that that's largely what's happening and that reverse dieting even in cases where it appears to be working, is not causing the outcome, but is actually the effect of the outcome. The actual cause there is going from negative energy balance to neutral energy balance. So like I said, there's no question, based on the evidence, it's very, very clear. Going from negative energy balance to neutral energy balance has physiological ramifications that may indeed lead to increases in energy expenditure. But what I'm arguing is that, you know, when you go from energy balance to like, what if I added five grams of fat? That's not physiologically doing really anything at all, right? It's just going from negative to neutral energy balance. That may facilitate increases in energy expenditure energy expenditure such that you find over time okay, I went from a deficit to maintenance. And then my energy expenditure actually started creeping up a little bit because of that transition to maintenance. And now I find I can actually add in a little bit of calories and still truly be at maintenance. Like this is that dynamic maintenance concept is that, okay, I initially jumped to maintenance and then energy expenditure kind of revved up a little bit because of that. And now for me to actually be at my true maintenance, I, I do need to add in, you know, 10, 15 grams of carbs because I'm I'm noticing over time a little, a little bit of a reduction in energy expenditure or a little bit of a reduction in body weight, right? And so what we're doing there, it, it, it's switching cause and effect. With reverse dieting, the theory is that you are adding these little tiny amounts of calories and they are stimulating this robust response where energy expenditure for some reason is ramping up instead of weight gain, even though we know that weight gain occurs slowly. I mean, if you if you look at weight trends in the population over time, it's not because the general population is doing overly aggressive 12-week bulking phases. It's because they have a very slight energy mismatch for a very long time. And we see slow weight gain over time in most cases when we look at longitudinal data. There's no reason to believe that if you just go into a slight positive energy deficit or uh, energy balance, that for some reason your body's going to say, you know what? we're just not going to gain any fat. We refuse to. That's just not how we respond to overfeeding. I mean, mathematically, physiologically, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. So what I argue is we need to flip cause and effect. The cause is not that we're you know, increasing 10 grams of carbs and that is ramping up energy expenditure. That's not how it works. I suggest we invert that by going from neutral or from negative to neutral uh, energy balance, 
we might notice that as a result of that body weight or uh, energy expenditure does tend to trend up over time. And then we are increasing calories to simply keep up with that effect. And we might find that we have to make a couple of those adjustments, a few of those adjustments where we start to say, yeah, I, I'm still getting some of that little gradual increase in energy expenditure just because I'm not in that big deficit anymore. And as that keeps occurring, I can make these small incremental increases in, in my calorie targets. I can add 10 grams of carbs here, five grams of fat there. Now, that perspective is much more in line with the evidence uh, across many areas of the literature than the idea that for some reason in a weight-reduced state, if we just overfeed slowly, we're not going to regain fat. That, to, to my knowledge, it's never been observed, and the opposite have been, has been observed uh, on in many, 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 many times. So um, a lot of people will hear that argument, and they'll say, Eric, you are reaching really hard here. Like, this is... <laughs> This is the most petty, semantic-driven <laughs> argument I've ever heard. Did you really need to write 60 pages on this crap? I understand that perspective, but again, I think it's important to understand the ramifications of properly attributing cause and effect here. If you believe that a 5-gram or 10-gram day-to-day fluctuation in carbs is meaningfully influencing your ability to successfully diet in the future, that sucks. That is not a fun way to approach a diet. The margin of error is zero. That's very rigid cognitive restraint in terms of what it's reinforcing. Uh, it's a stressful experience. And more importantly, it's not backed by evidence. The inverse of that is a much more palatable reality, which is compatible with the evidence, which is that, hey, you're experiencing some adaptations because you've been in a deficit for a while. Why don't you get to maintenance? And then if you need to increase calories every so often to, to stay in maintenance, Go ahead and do it. That'll be great. And you know that that psychologically is a completely different intervention. Uh, and it also it frees the dieter from the burden of needing to strategically and actively fix and manipulate their total daily energy expenditure via speculative interventions without a, an evidentiary basis. That's a stressful way to live. It's saying, I am single-handedly responsible for managing my physiology down to the level of like five gram carbohydrate in increments on a day-to-day -day basis. Because you know what happens with reverse dieting, uh, if you're unable to maintain that unsustainable level of precision, you fail. And that, that's not setting anyone up for success in the future. So there's a, a very realistic threat of failing in the short term. And then Imagine your disappointment, Steve, when you do this reverse dieting, it seems to be working for a while. You believe that you've you put in all this work, all this meticulous effort to build up your energy expenditure and to stoke your metabolic furnace and build up your metabolic capacity. And you have a thrifty phenotype. And the second you start your next diet, it tanks. That's not good, man. That's not good. Yeah. To 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 really believe that. Every little tiny detail of that intervention mattered and was important and was a pain in the ass to do. And then it disappears in two days. That's not good. And yeah. it's also just not supported by the evidence. So I'm not yeah. trying to say like, hey, let's ignore the evidence and just psychologically make this more, more palatable. I'm saying what we're doing is with this, this concept of reverse dying is ignoring the evidence and making it psychologically less palatable. Losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? 
It isn't though, it's reality and we know how to do it. And we will help you achieve this. The Minicup Movement is an eight week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You will receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of the minicup so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do. But the best thing is that you can start whenever you want. The minicup movement is open 24 seven. So if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up, hit the link in the description below. So let's revive stronger together. It's, and the scenario you describe with that person that they already think they're broken. So they do the thing to unbreak themselves supposedly. And then they go again and they're like, I'm permanently broken. Like I am, I, I can't diet. I can't be better. Whereas you're like, we've got a solution here. You are not broken. There's plausible mm -hmm. reasons for all of this. And there's kind of, you don't need to be stressed about something that you're clearly super stressed about. And they're just, I mean, it would put them in that permanent, just like yo-yo diet. They'd look for the next kind of fad that maybe provides this magic solution. And that's a lot of what this kind of almost sounds like. I know for myself, when I first came across refeeds, I was like, I have to do a refeed in a diet because it's at the time, I think it was like seen as a bit of a magical, like it, it leads to fat loss. It's like, why would eating at maintenance for a day, which is taking me out of a deficit, lead to more fat loss than being in a deficit for a whole week? And like, why would that, like, it wouldn't because we thought maybe more was going on than what we seem to know now. And I think it's similar to this where people really hope that there's some like magic and we can kind of trick the body. It's like... I mean, you're plainly putting in sight that we can't, but it's a good thing, really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's it's one thing to try an intervention that isn't effective and say, eh, you know, whatever, that's fine. You know, like, so for example, let's say that, you know, you, you, you thought refeeds would do more than they than they really do. You did them during a prep. Are you really that worse off for it? Probably not. You probably enjoyed the refeed and you ended up in the same place anyway. Well, all good, right? No, no big deal. But I think we have to be extra cautious for an intervention like this that is very tedious and challenging and kind of stressful for a lot of people, but one that is also kind of framed as like a last resort. Like, yeah. you know, okay, yeah, I know you've had struggles with weight maintenance and weight loss and all this stuff. Here is kind of the last stone to turn over in order to fix all this. And then when that, in my opinion, based on the evidence, inevitably leads to falling short of a lot of those promises and claims, that can be a really devastating experience that leads to a, a tremendous amount of motivational collapse to borrow on a psychological term. Uh, so, you know, I, I know I talk about psychology a lot and in, in this conversation, and there, there's for two reasons. First of all, it's, it, it's very important. Um, you know, but, but second of all, I, I just think it's, it, it's important to highlight that the, cost of doing a fruitless intervention varies depending on the psychological context you know so psychological psychology absolutely matters but what i'm doing here is not ignoring the physiology in favor of the psychology what i'm trying to say is like hey this is psychologically not very advantageous um, based on the likely outcomes but also physiologically th th there's just not the evidence to support it and i know 
throughout this talk, uh, this conversation, I, I probably had some facial expressions that might seem a little bit eh, snarky, condescending, whatever the case may be. That's certainly not the intention. Uh, part of that is just like me smirking at myself in 2014 and being like, Eric, come on. <laughs> What, why did you think this was going to go so well? And like, to, you know, to give myself a, a tiny bit of credit, like I never sold a a product or a book or anything saying, oh, reverse dying, you got to do it. Um, but but I do think looking back at it, part of the reason I smile is because I'm like, oh, Eric, your, your optimism, uh, even if you didn't go all in on it, you know, after looking at some of the newest evidence, it's just like, yeah. I should have seen these illusions earlier and I just didn't. And, and there, there's nothing wrong with that. Like this yeah. is new evidence that's coming out. So if, if if you're listening or watching this episode and you're kind of bristling at me being a smart ass the whole time, please understand that I'm it, to have been convinced by any of these illusions is not something that anyone should ever feel bad about because they are very damn convincing. Um, but, but thanks to, some really good research that's come out over the last few years. I think we we are now in a position to really rigorously contextualize those observations and clarify those illusions. And so I, I hope that someone listening to this who really likes the premise of reverse dieting is not discouraged, but is rather encouraged. Because what I'm saying is all of the uh, things that reverse dieting can actually do are attainable in a much easier way. And that is by strategically implementing maintenance phases that are dynamic in nature, such that you're simply keeping up with what your true maintenance level is. And I guess uh, for the very lean competitor, it's a case of that kind of recovery diet phase where we're getting that body fat back on and then potentially a maintenance yes. if they want to support that kind of period of time or probably a lot of competitors just get into like a smaller surplus and go from there and it's fine with the uh the chicken before the egg type of scenario with the, and the progressive overload like it's not the extra load that led to that adaptation it's all the like stuff you've been doing before it the easy example i think of with that in the nutritional realm is like when you're in a surplus it's not like you add 100 calories and that's leading to like you being in like it. It's not something you can just have a bigger surplus and it's shrunk because you added 100 calories. It's like, no, you increase because you saw your weight stabilizing because now you're a bigger individual. You've been in a surplus for longer. You need another 100 to get you mm -hmm. back into like that reasonable surplus or what have you. Or it might be more than 100, uh, depending on how kind of you're manipulating things and how precise you are. But yeah, it's it's uh, it all makes a ton of sense. And I'm glad I think it's helping a lot of people out because I know I was thankful to have got into more bodybuilding coaching and doing this when it had already kind of been a little bit debunked, not as kind of wholesome, uh, I don't know, uh, holistically as what you've done here. But I know from like the 3DMJ guys, I think they had a lot of clients. They tried to, to kind of do this meticulous reverse diet and it's just falling on its face quite regularly. And so, I mean, it's yeah. very similar. It's I'd actually never heard that in the Minnesota starvation study. And like you said, a lot of people talk about it on the way down, not the recovery side. But back then we even saw that like these guys are just not doing well when they're trying yeah. to maintain such low levels of body fat. I, I was going to say, it, it's a really beautiful thing when research and application really do combine and, and marry up very uh, cohesively. And basically, you know, talking to Helms uh, on behalf of the three DMJ guys, they basically just found exactly what the Minnesota starvation experiment found, which is that reverse dieting, very difficult in that context, 
very unpleasant. Everyone hates it and recovery is delayed in a very major way. Uh, and, and so, yeah, it's sometimes we have to wrestle with these differences between anecdote and research, but when, when they're so, so cohesively combined like that, it can be very refreshing. Um, if I could add one thing to the discussion, if I could put out a bit of an olive branch, uh, I do in the article explain that there, there are two reasons that someone might try reverse dieting. And if I could briefly address those, I think it'd be, uh, a, a, a helpful thing to include. Um, one thing, uh, a very simple reason to try reverse dieting is that you find it interesting. I have never lost a moment of sleep over the concept that someone out there is doing a reverse diet. The, the purpose of this article is not for me to shame you for doing it or to talk you out of it. Okay. Uh, my goal as a practitioner and a content creator is just to try to put out information so that people can have an informed perspective of what they wish to do, right? It's not to influence what people do necessarily. So if you want to try reverse dieting because you think physiology is cool and you just want to take a stab at it, by all means, uh, you're welcome to it. I don't fault you for it. I don't expect that it will live up to any of the claims that are promoted, but by all means, you know, there, if you know the, the cost going into it and you have a reasonable level of expectation, you know, no harm in that. The other area where I think it might make sense is sometimes, Steve, you know, if you if you ever work with general population folks, sometimes you'll help somebody with a weight loss phase and they get to the end of it and they say, I'm very happy with where we're at. I'd like to maintain this essentially in perpetuity in the long term. And so sometimes you'll find someone who's very averse to, to regaining any of the weight that was lost. They want to get to maintenance. They would prefer to make sure that that they're not underestimating their maintenance by 100 or 200 calories per day. Because like I said, sometimes we do that and we think we're at maintenance, but we're actually in just the very slightest deficit. For an individual like that who has no idea after the diet what their maintenance calories should be, like if they haven't crunched the numbers of, okay, if I'm losing this much per week and I do some energy uh, you know, what's the energy cost of fat loss? What's the energy cost of lean mass? You know, if, if people aren't doing those meticulous calculations, they won't know exactly where their energy expenditure ought to be at the end of that. And even if they did, it might change a tiny bit as they go from negative to neutral energy balance. I do think there is one application, uh, you know, on the, on our podcast, we've talked a little bit about how you only do a dreamer bulk one time. You know, it's everyone's done it. Uh, you you gain like sixty pounds, and you say, "Okay, now I've got a bunch of muscle and a whole bunch of other stuff." And, and now now you go into kind of the more steady state bodybuilding, bulk and cut kind of cycle. I think reverse dieting makes a lot more sense when you view it as more of like a one time thing for someone who doesn't know at the end of their their diet where they got down to where they want to be. They don't know where their maintenance is supposed to be. You could use this kind of approach to just say, hey, let's kind of tiptoe our way back and try to find a maintenance uh, calorie level that works for us. Is it going to make their maintenance, uh, long-term maintenance, you know, meaningfully more successful? No, no, there's no reason to suggest that. Like it's not going to set them, they don't need to do this to avoid weight regain in the future. Um, is it going to make their next weight loss phase easier? There's there's no reason to believe that. No, it's, it's not necessary, but it is, if you are 
very nervous about assuming what your maintenance calories ought to be at this new body weight that you want to maintain essentially forever in perpetuity. I do think it it can sometimes make sense to say, okay, well, we've got all the time in the world. It's not like we're missing out on bulking time. Um, You know, I'd really like to avoid uh, regaining fat. I'm not experiencing any symptoms of relative energy deficiency. I'm not like, you know, it's not like I have like low libido, low energy, menstrual cycle disruption. So maybe I'll just take my time and just ease back into maintenance. And if I happen to lose a little more weight in the process, no big deal. I think that's a very reasonable uh, approach to using this concept of the slow energy, you know, slow increases in targets. Um, but that that's such a unique situation where you're at the end of a diet, you want to maintain it essentially in perpetuity. You have no symptoms of relative energy deficiency. You have no ambitions of a really aggressive bulking phase coming up. It's one of the few like niche scenarios where you would say, okay, Looking at that, I'm not sure that we've necessarily lost anything in the process, you know, and if it makes someone feel a little bit better that they don't take a leap of faith and add immediately, you know, 400 calories to their diet, by all means, I I think that makes sense. That's uh, actually one scenario I have used it just recently, similar to that, uh, essentially someone, he kind of finished his fat loss phase, but then he booked in a holiday like a month away and he was like, I could do up getting a bit leaner, but I'm not really fussed and I just don't want to really gain any weight and I want to kind of maintain this lean look. So we just like, we're right, like, let's creep your food up like towards maintenance, towards the holiday. So you're kind of feeling good and uh, for the for the trip yeah. and still looking nice and lean. So I think that's like a, a nice application uh, yeah. for sure. And, and, and along those lines, yeah, sorry to cut you off. I just, with my brain, if I don't say it, I'll lose it. <laughs> I know, uh, same for me. I just yeah. lose everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, Another application where it kind of makes sense to take a somewhat similar approach um, is, you know, you've got a a competitor who they win their pro card in January and they need to compete within the year to keep it. And there's a show in three months and they're like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to do another prep like this year. Right. So can we just kind of tread water? and just get to that next show. Or you have a client who's who's doing two bodybuilding shows and they're four months apart or three months apart, and you just need to bridge that gap, right? I do think it makes sense that you, you'd say, okay, well, we got, we got in shape for the first show. We want to stay in shape, right? So um, we are aiming for maintenance-ish, but the consequence of overshooting a maintenance estimate is greater than the consequence of undershooting a maintenance estimate in that short-term scenario. So that's another instance where you could say, okay, well, we will do something that approximately resembles a reverse diet only so that we attenuate the risk of overshooting it and causing some some fat regain right before a show, which is obviously not ideal. But the important thing is when you look at these applications we've just talked about of reverse dieting, there's almost no interesting or exciting claim involved with it. There's no <laughs> physiology. It, it's purely in a matter of being practical logistics and just saying, okay, well, what's the cost of this versus that? But revving up metabolism, making the next diet easier, all that stuff is is off the table. Yeah. And that's, it's actually something I was referring to right at the start where there might be an application for it. And that was this, and mm-hmm. there's a few bodybuilding coach. I think Eric Helms likes to use it. Um, I know Cliff Wilson does. And this is that like number of week period if you can get ready early almost where you can just like slowly trickle up food it's almost like a 
a long peaking approach <laughs> rather than trying yeah, to do it in a peak week you do it in like, like a let's peak carb month. <laughs> up over yeah let's carb up over three weeks instead of two days yeah, yeah exactly and yeah it's like you said it's those examples or you in the uk we have qualifiers and then finals so if you like qualify you're almost peak physique or at peak physique it's like nice now we can like use that bridge towards the next um but yeah like you said there's nothing particularly magical or exciting about it you can still peak pretty well without having to do it uh but eric i i won't keep blabbing uh it's been fantastic talking to you here and i think this will have some really good solid practical takeaways a lot of the audience are kind of coaches to bodybuilders or bodybuilding competitors and obviously anyone who's like everyone listening is going through like cutting massing phases maybe they want to go through an extended maintenance so i think this is a really important topic to cover and it will come out towards the end of also the bodybuilding season so there'll probably be people thinking about it so kind of make them look in and so i think you did a great job of making people feel also heard in that you're not trying to have a stab at them or a go at them it's you're not trying to be like haha you're wrong because you were in this position if if they were in the position of thinking it's something to do you were there a number of years ago and it's kind of like well actually as a scientist i've got to update my beliefs and thought process and new evidence has come out and i can't support this anymore so i can see why because you were someone who instigated it maybe a little bit at the start you feel quite strongly to kind of update people right now so uh, thank you so much for coming on and i can only I, I know like the stronger by science podcast we've already talked about it macro factor uh, as well i'll make sure those are a link below so if people are interested in the app macro factor or the stronger by science podcast definitely check it out I'll also link the article is there anything else i've missed there that people should know about i'll tr link your instagram too <laughs> yeah um no that's it um, i i really appreciate the opportunity it's always great to chat always great to to catch up and Ultimately, hopefully this is is uh, useful or helpful to some number of people. Um, and Absolutely. like I said, uh, many, many, many times and you reiterated, not taking a jab at anybody, um, just trying to trying to update and basically say, "Ooh, I probably shouldn't have uh, mentioned this in the peer reviewed literature in 2014, but you kind of can't go backwards. So let's let's reassess the evidence and, and kind of move forward with an updated uh, perspective on it. Fantastic. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Thank you once again, Eric, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. You Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people, uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. It's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics, discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're going to have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. 
the exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy. We're gonna go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're gonna be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.